0: Hey, uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles on the back table um, next to the, uh, the giving box. And if you have your Bible but you are having a hard time finding Jonah, there's no shame in flipping to the front where the, the table of contents is for a little bit of help. So, so good luck because it's only four chapters and it's kind of buried in the Old Testament. It's hard to find. <laughs> Well, today we find ourselves in week three of our four-week series, as you can see, entitled Magnificent Mysterious Mercy. And I find that that has been a very fitting title for this series, as we've seen throughout the book of Jonah so far. That is precisely what we are witnessing, Magnificent Mysterious Mercy. Hey, remember with me in chapter 1. That the Lord instructed the prophet Jonah to leave his home in Israel and to travel northeast to the great pagan city of Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. And there, this was uh, what was commanded to Jonah. He was to declare a word of warning to the people of Nineveh that God was not pleased with them. And if they did not turn from their wicked ways, God would surely rain down his judgment upon them. Now as a prophet... As a messenger of God, it was Jonah's job to speak to people on behalf of God. But as we saw in chapter 1, Jonah did not like this particular assignment. He did not exactly agree with God about this particular assignment. And a relatively quick history lesson kind of helps us to see why. See, around the time that Jonah was being sent to prophesy against the Gentile city of Nineveh, God was simultaneously speaking to Jonah's own people, the Israelites, through another prophet named Hosea. And according to the word of the Lord spoken through Hosea, the Gentile city of Nineveh would actually soon rise up against Israel and successfully destroy them and lead them off into exile. So just so we're clear, the very people that God was sending Jonah to minister to would soon bring destruction upon Jonah's own people. So it's kind of no wonder why Jonah struggled with this particular assignment from God. I mean, imagine a Jew in the early 1930s being sent to minister to the Nazis, having full knowledge of what was about to happen. It's kind of, kind of sets the scene, doesn't it? The last thing Jonah wanted to do was to warn the Ninevites about God's judgment, because what if they repented? What if they ended up receiving God's mercy? Jonah would rather die than to be a light to the, gen, to, to the Gentile Ninevites and, and lead them to a time of repentance. And he proved that he would rather die in chapter one. Remember. He disobeyed the Lord by sailing in the opposite, opposite direction as Nineveh. And then even after God hurled a storm at the boat, nearly shipwrecking it, Jonah insisted to be thrown overboard because he would rather die than turn back to Nineveh. But as we saw last week in chapter 2, as Jonah sunk deeper and deeper into his watery grave, so to speak, he was given this moment of clarity. He had a moment of clear thinking. Is it really worth it that I am drowning here, being tangled in seaweed? Is it really worth losing my life just to avoid the Ninevites? And in this moment of clarity, remember in chapter two, we read his prayer, he called out to the Lord. He called out for mercy and in the form of a giant hungry fish, That is exactly what God gave him mercy. Magnificent, mysterious mercy. God appointed the fish, we read, to swallow Jonah in order to rescue him from drowning. And then, from inside the fish, deep beneath the surface of the Mediterranean Sea, Jonah was provided with a very frightening three day (laughs) sabbatical, was he not? Very frightening during which time Jonah acknowledged his foolishness, during which time in the the fish he thanked God for saving him, during which time he essentially recommitted himself to fulfilling the mission to Nineveh, did he not? So we ended last week with chapter 2, verse 10, with the Lord once again appointing or commanding the fish to vomit Jonah out upon dry land. That's how we ended. Not many times do we get to end a Sunday morning on that note, and he vomited up uh, on the dry land. So now, would you follow along as I read Jonah chapter 3? Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them and he did not do it. Hallelujah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, I simply ask that you would give us ears to hear what you'd like us to hear this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So my wife, Lindsay, and I are quite fond of the late 19th century Baptist preacher, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. In fact, we named our second daughter Haddon after Charles Haddon Spurgeon. We also named our, our second son Keller after our favorite Presbyterian minister, Tim Keller. And in our household, Haddon and Keller get along great, except for when it comes to baptism. (laughs) Theology jokes. Hashtag theology jokes. That literally has nothing to do with where I'm going, except for I'm going to tell you a story about Spurgeon. So in 1857... Charles Spurgeon was scheduled to preach at the world-renowned Crystal Palace in London, England. Now, the day before he was scheduled to preach, Spurgeon, who thought he was alone in the building, he took the platform in the Crystal Palace, and he began to test the acoustics of the room. It's a big room, and it was before amplification, so there were no microphones and speakers. And so in his typical thunderous preacher's voice he bellowed out from the pulpit, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not a bad sound check, right? Well, unbeknownst to Spurgeon, there was a worker preparing one of the adjacent galleries in the Crystal Palace who heard these words. And years later, The worker reported that when he heard Spurgeon's words from the pulpit echoing through the Crystal Palace, his soul was immediately pierced as if directly from heaven. And he was so, in that moment, overwhelmed with a conviction of his sin that he put down his tools, he checked out for the day, he went home, and after a season of what he described as a, a season of spiritual struggling... He finally came to peace by beholding the very Lamb of God that Spurgeon was crying out about from the pulpit during a sound check. This man, in an instant, trusted Christ for forgiveness and salvation. Talk about magnificent, mysterious mercy that the Word of God is so effectually potent It's so powerful that it can pierce the heart of a seemingly random, insignificant bystander in a completely different room and change his life forever. Is that not a beautiful illustration for essentially what we see in Jonah chapter three today? Namely that God so desires to save people and his perfect word is so powerful to do so that salvation literally cannot help but burst forth onto the scene when so much as a syllable of the gospel is uttered. Hallelujah. This is what I believe the Holy Spirit is screaming at us in this morning's passage. Here is my thesis idea. By God's magnificent mercy, he is pleased to save sinners by the proclamation of his perfect word, even when it's proclaimed by imperfect people. Such as myself, case in point. And so let's break that that, that idea down into two points. If you're a note taker, here are the two points we will be operating under for the rest of our time. Number one, God is pleased to save sinners by the proclamation of his perfect word. He delights in saving sinners by the preaching of his gospel. This is how he has ordained it. Number two, God is pleased to use imperfect people to do so. Which is great news because as I look around the room, no offense, I see a bunch of imperfect people. Do I not, right? Are we all in this together? But we don't have to miss out on the joy of watching dead people come to life in Christ by the power of God's perfect word. And we're gonna look at how that that is true. Number one, God is pleased to save sinners by the proclamation of his perfect word. One could actually argue that the entire book of Jonah is a proof text of that statement, of point number one. See, the whole plot balances on that statement. The whole story balances on chapter three. The whole reason why Jonah was commissioned in the first place, right? Go back to chapter 1, the whole reason for the storm, the whole reason for the fish is because God had purpose to save sinners. He had purpose to save the pagan sailors in chapter 1, which was a precursor to the Gentiles in chapter 3. He had purpose to save the pagan Ninevites, which we have just read, and he had purpose to do so by the proclamation of his perfect word that he would deliver through a very imperfect prophet named Jonah. God's word, God's decree is infallible meaning this. God's word always accomplishes all that he intends to accomplish. Always. It can't not accomplish what it was intended to accomplish. Isaiah 55:11 The words of the Lord. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word is infallible, it's perfect. It, it, it always accomplishes that which God intends to accomplish. When God said in Genesis, let there be light, it was not as if the light had much of an option to let there be or not. When God told Lazarus' dead body to rise, Lazarus didn't have a say in the matter. When, when in the desert, when Jesus commanded Satan to be gone, it wasn't up for debate. When the dry bones were told to come to life in Ezekiel 37, they had no other choice. When the wind and the waves were told to be still on the Sea of Galilee, they were rendered motionless without an argument. They didn't get to, to talk back. They just did because God's word was sent forth and it accomplishes always what it intends to accomplish because God's perfect word always accomplishes its intended purposes so what are we to make about Jonah's word that uh, excuse me God's word that Jonah proclaims in verse 4 of our passage what are we to make of this yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown thus saith the Lord what are we to think about that because there's a there's there's a little bit of modern scholarship currently that questions the infallibility of God's word right here. Because what we see is that Nineveh is clearly not overthrown. I mean, we just read the whole chapter. So is God's word in fact infallible? Does it really accomplish all that he intends it to accomplish? Bible trivia, of course it does. Of course it does. We simply must deduce That Jonah's proclamation in verse 4 was not ultimately intended to overthrow Nineveh in judgment. God was intending to overwhelm Nineveh with mercy. He wasn't intending to curse them. He was intending to bless them. A little bit of Jewish history in Genesis chapter 12, when God calls Abraham to be the patriarch of the great nation of Israel, he tells, the word of the Lord tells Abraham that you and Israel will be a blessing to the surrounding Gentile nations. Do we hear that? God decreed that Israel would be, they will be a blessing. Now, if we fast forward a few centuries during the days of Jonah and the nation of Israel, they couldn't be further from blessing the nations around them. They couldn't be further. Jonah himself is a callous, angry, hard-hearted racist. And if you don't believe me, stick around for chapter 4 next week. But God's word to Abraham from way back in Genesis 12 still Stood because God's perfect word is infallible. Israel would be a blessing to the Gentile nations, including Assyria, which includes Nineveh. You guys, we must see God's word of judgment as spoken through Jonah in verse 4 was never intended to be a curse. In God's magnificent, mysterious mercy, it was intended to bless. It was intended to make good on the word that God had given to Abraham in Genesis 12. Israel, you will be a blessing to the nations. Even if it required a rebellious prophet, a storm, and a hungry fish to make it happen, God's word would stand fast. God is pleased to save sinners by the proclamation of his perfect word. See, like the murderous Pharisee, Saul of Tarsus in Acts chapter nine, God simply, as Saul was traveling on the road to Damascus, God simply opened his mouth, remember, and Saul was flattened. Now, with the exact same power, God speaks five Hebrew words through the prophet Jonah, which translate, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown, and an entire city, over 100,000 people, are bulldozed into a wholesale revival. As we saw in this morning's call to worship, Psalm 98, the Lord has indeed made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of nations. So what else but God's perfect and infallible word could cause an entire city, an entire city of restless and unbridled evil, a city of murderers and thieves and perverts and idolaters, what else But God's perfect word could cause a king and all of his subjects, including the cows and the goats, to mourn their sin so thoroughly that they wear sackcloth, a very uncomfortable furry fabric, and to abstain from food and water and to wallow on the floor in dust and ashes. I mean, what we see from the people of Nineveh, they demonstrate an absolutely authentic repentance. I wish we could do a sermon just on the authenticity of their repentance. They acknowledge God's authority and they admit, that they admit they've transgressed him. In verse five, they demonstrate remorse for their sin. They cry out to God for forgiveness and then they turn. Greek word metanoia they turn away from their evil while trusting God for miraculous mercy in verses seven and eight look at what God accomplishes through five Hebrew words of judgment look at what he does he renders a city on its knees this is exciting you guys this is good we can smile look at this Because you and I, brothers and sisters, we have an even better word. You and I have the complete story. We have the whole gospel. We have the total fulfillment of God's blessing to the nations. We have God's perfect word made flesh. We have Christ. Crucified and resurrected, we have Christ so Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Amen. Are we aware, are we aware this morning in Ashland, Ohio, that God is still pleased to save sinners with his perfect word? He's still in the business of doing this. Are we confident in the gospel to soften even the hardest of hearts, to to purify even the most depraved of minds, to unchain even the most enslaved of sinners? Are we confident that our Jesus is a better Jonah who not only declared judgment against us, Jesus is returning with judgment, folks. He did declare that. But then he suffered that judgment in our place. Jesus was willing to be overthrown on a cross so that Nineveh and you and I don't have to be. Could it be that as the the modern church, could it be that, that we are so weak in the area of evangelism because as believers, we struggle to believe the power of God's perfect word? Do we we struggle so much because we don't know what we actually have? That during a sound check in the Crystal Palace, someone's heart could be rendered completely flattened by God's grace? That an entire city of pagans, murderous pagans, would be brought to its knees by five words from the Lord? Or maybe we've forgotten the second point this morning, that God is pleased to use imperfect people to proclaim his perfect word. We see this, we see God's pleasure in using imperfect people. We see this in vivid color with God's recommissioning of Jonah in verses one and two. While it's true that Jonah had a come to Jesus moment in the belly of the fish, right? He, he had a, a moment of repentance in the belly of the fish in chapter two. It's true that there was a moment, but, but his heart, as we will see next week in chapter four, was still very far from being pure concerning the Ninevites, he was miles away from the purity that he needed to have as the prophet of God. In fact, many commentators speculate that the reason why God vomits Jonah from the fish rather than simply opening the fish's mouth and letting Jonah leave, the reason why God vomits, commentators speculate, is to symbolize God's disgust for the hatred that still lingers in Jonah's heart toward the Ninevites. Jonah's motives, his heart, his mind are far from perfect this morning in this passage. But that does not render him unusable in the hands of a perfect God. Now, what I'm not saying when I say that, I am not saying that we should just flippantly ignore our own hard hearts and our poor motives because, well, God's gonna use me anyway. By no means, Paul would say. By no means. In fact, if we are not compelled to pursue the holistic righteousness that Christ died to give us, we might need to question the legitimacy of our belief in him. What I am saying right now for this sermon this morning and what I, is what I've been saying all along, church, we've got to see and own this truth that by God's magnificent mercy, he's pleased to save sinners by the proclamation of his perfect word even when it's proclaimed by imperfect people, you and I. We've got to see this. God is in the business of using imperfect people for perfect kingdom work. I mean, does anyone recall the story of Peter, for goodness sake, who denied Christ three times, but God did not strip him of his jersey, right? Nor did God swap out Jonah for another better varsity prophet like Hosea because God sovereignly saw fit that Jonah, not anybody else. Jonah, in all of his imperfection, was the man for the job. Brothers and sisters, can we please be encouraged by this? Can we please be empowered by this? Because there's no doubt that you and I have failed many times miserably. There's no doubt that you and I have disobeyed. Maybe some of us have been riddled with prejudice or simply afraid to take the word of the Lord to our coworkers, to our neighbors, to the lost man on the side of the street, wherever. But God has not stripped us of our jersey and he's calling you and I back into the game. How's that for like three sports metaphors so far? Peter says that you and I are a kingdom of priests. You and I. And we've been commissioned by King Jesus in Matthew 28 with all of our imperfections intact to what? Go into all of the world and to make disciples of every nation, to show them with our lives and teach them with our lips God's perfect word. You are being recommissioned this morning, Substance Ashland. Recommissioned into the greatest mission field with the most powerful word we could possibly imagine. Why are we not, in light of Jonah chapter 3, more amped up to go and to preach the good news? And don't for one second think that Ashland is not a mission field, am I right? I mean, we are surrounded by people who are, oh God, deceived into thinking that they're bona fide followers of Christ because they were baptized when they were five and they're a pretty moral person now. That is not the gospel. There are people all around you in Ashland and I in Worcester that are quite literally dying in self-righteousness, waiting to hear the actual good news, that Jesus came to save those who know they were dead and dead in their trespasses, those who can't work their way out of the pit, because even our good works in self-righteousness are vinegar to a thirsty king because they're rooted in pride and self-reliance. We have a ripe mission field in Wayne and Ashland County to preach this good news. Now we may be reluctant for a couple of reasons. We may need to repent because we feel a disdain for the people around us, a disdain for our roommate or the person we share a cubicle with at work, or even our own family members. God is calling you, he's placed you, not another priest, not another prophet, he's placed you where you are sovereignly so that you, with your lips and your life, would show them and preach them the good news. And it can be as simple as behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he uses that, he uses that. The Holy Spirit regenerates hearts with even that. Another reason we might be reluctant is for fear that we will be rejected so we let ourselves off the hook. Dudes and dudettes, you will be rejected. We will be, we will be But oh goodness, the fear that we won't know what to say in the moment, the fear that we we don't have enough theological knowledge. In Luke chapter 12, Christ says, don't be anxious in those moments. What you have to say, the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So if the Holy Spirit promises to help us in those most urgent of situations, how much more will he help us in the lunchroom at our high school in moments for evangelism? He is going to help us. He's going to help you with the words, even if you can't clearly articulate the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. I wish that we all could articulate that, but we are all not there. But that does not mean that we aren't being called to proclaim as good news, does it? We are still called. Can you say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Then you can evangelize, you can disciple, you can go to the nations I was on a plane uh, with my wife. I was. On, I was. We were flying to Seattle, where I'm originally from. And I didn't. I didn't know anything. I was so junior varsity in my biblical knowledge. I still am. I am. I still. I'm embarrassed to be standing here. But I. I'm sitting on a plane next to a guy who introduces himself. Hi, I'm Ben. I am. He saw the Bible in my hand. I'm the president of the atheists and agnostics at my university you're freaking kidding me. <laughs> and I sit next to this guy and you have those moments, right? Where all of a sudden you're like, oh, I have to tell him the gospel. I have to. So like a four hour plane ride and I'm like perspirating and like, you know, sweating and shaking. And Lindsay's like, do it. And I'm like, you do it. Treat me spots. You know what I mean? Like I, look, we all get these, these spiritual nudges, don't we? We get, we get those nudges, right? Like, Like, goodness, Jonah was parachuted into a completely different nation. And part of that was the reason why they listened to him so aptly. Like, they were ready because he he was coming from a hated nation. Why else would you be here unless you had the truth, right? So I'm sitting on this plane. You guys, I'm embarrassed to tell you this. He's telling me the whole spiel of atheism and Gnosticism. And I simply asked him, Well, how does all of that make you feel? And then I had this speck of godly insight like, Ben, if you don't care, if there's really no meaning, you're actually going against your own philosophy of life by caring so much to tell me about the meaninglessness of it all. I kid you not. I kid you not. By the end of the plan, I kid you not. This man received Christ. I kid you not. I kid you not, using an absolute idiot, imbecile like myself. How does that make you feel, Ben? <laughs> but by God's grace, and my wife can, can testify to this, I even kept in touch with Ben for a while. I, as far as I can tell, he continues to be a disciple of Christ. I don't know how, except for the word of God is powerful and he uses imperfect people. He uses imperfect people. With this in mind, we ought to go boldly, humbly but boldly into our break room at work, into our cafe, at cafeteria, at school. We ought to go humbly and boldly into Bueller's or wherever it is that you go. Be repetitious, maybe eat at the same restaurant every Wednesday purposefully to have the same waiter and pray before you go that you would be able to, with your lips and your life, demonstrate for them the good news over a season of time. We can do this. We can actually do this. It's not rocket science. And we can have this confidence because God's word always accomplishes that which he intends to accomplish. We have a guarantee. We're armed with an even better word than, than Jonah had. We're armed with the good news. And God's word doesn't return void. He will save. So, we needn't be fear nor be reluctant. I mean, if God can use a, he can mightily use an accidental messenger such as Charles Spurgeon in another room. And if he can use a reluctant prophet going to a city that he absolutely hated, how much more can he use a church of somewhat willing people who love Jesus and just simply want to see his word of power, his gospel overwhelm the lost this is a call to discipling and evangelism this is a call let's pray father your word go therefore you all of you in this room go therefore and make disciples of all nations Patiently show them, patiently teach them to observe the perfect word of the Lord. Oh God, I pray that you would embolden us, that you would make us simply courageous, that we would see the likes of Jonah in chapter 3, a city brought to its knees by a reluctant prophet, and that we would just fully appreciate the perfect word that we behold, and that we would fully be readied as imperfect priests as imperfect men and women to go and to, and to bring that word to those who need to hear it. And what I ask for is something that only you, Holy Spirit, can produce. Would you bring revival to the lost people that we come into contact with? Would you save them? Give us a taste of the raw power, the unfettered power of the kingdom. Give us a hunger, a zeal to go and to preach. We needn't fear. We needn't be intimidated. There is tremendous joy ahead for indeed, as Jonah chapter two said, salvation is of the Lord. Thank you, Christ Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.